So please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're studying verses 51 through 66. And I don't know about you, but I love studying the Bible. I like going through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and just plumbing it for its amazing truths that are in there. You have to study it in context, understand what's being said, and let me tell you something. Studying the Word of God will blow your mind. It will blow your mind because it's, it's living and active, according to Hebrews 4.12, and it changes our hearts. So let's pray this morning that the Lord changes our hearts as we study his word. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. It says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said truly this was the son of God father God in heaven Lord thank you for your word as we study it this morning uh, speak to our hearts and Lord let us just soak it in let us explore it let us pull it apart verse by verse and just let it sink deep into our hearts and change us First in Jesus' mighty name I pray, Father. Amen. So as I was preparing for my teaching this week, and I read over this text about the uh, 10th, 15th, maybe the 20th time after I read through it, I, I found three questions that I kind of want to uh, teach from this morning. I, I want to study this text verse by verse, but I want to answer three questions. When you leave here today, I want you to be able to answer these three questions when it comes to your faith in God. And number one, the first question I want to answer this morning is, what is the significance of the temple veil being torn when Jesus died? We'll talk more about that in a minute if you've never heard of it. Number two, what was it like to remove the lifeless body of Jesus from the cross? I'm going to talk about that with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus removing his body from the cross. I want to talk about that because I think there's a lot there that we can talk about um, when it comes to that solemn, holy, sacred moment that those men experience. And thirdly, this is important and very intriguing, if you got the text yesterday, is where was Jesus' spirit between his final breath and his resurrection? Now, in the flesh, Jesus died on the cross. He was completely dead. But we know that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, the hypostatic union, 100% God, 100% man. I want to talk this morning, where was his eternal spirit between his death and resurrection? So those are the three things that we want to talk about this morning. I hope your minds are curious and thinking like, wow, this is going to be good. Because it was amazing as I studied it this week. So let's dive into it. The first question is, what is the significance of of the temple veil being torn when Jesus died. Let's pick it up at Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. And it's really the first half of the verse. Verse 51 says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So question number one is, what is the significance of the temple veil being torn? The veil that, that Matthew is referring to here was a curtain in the Jewish temple that was torn uh, into 
and it was, a, it was a veil that was in front of the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it was where God manifested his glory and his presence in the Old Testament. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the Lamb's blood on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant that was inside the Holy of Holies that was behind this temple veil. And that atonement was for, uh, for Israel's sin. And all of this took place behind this veil inside the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem. Josephus gives us some information about the veil that I want to share with you. Josephus, a Jewish historian, not a Christian, said this. The veil was 60 feet high and four inches thick. He said, I quote, horses tied to each side could not pull this veil apart. The veil was made of fine linen with scarlet, blue, and purple embroidery. And it was so large and it was so massive that it took over 300 priests to clean it. And it took 300 priests to maneuver it around. It was this massive, massive veil. Because if anybody went into the Holy of Holies unprepared, they could be struck dead by the Holy presence of God. It was the high priest, Yom Kippur. We've heard that phrase lately, the, the, the celebration of Yom Kippur, which is a, 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 the Day of Atonement. And it was when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice. So that's what this veil covered. And the veil being torn, it represents Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Pastor David, where did you get that from? If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... You see, in the Old Testament, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies uh, with the blood of the lamb that had been sacrificed. Today, we enter God's presence by the blood of Jesus. His sacrifice, amen, his sacrifice completely cleanses us and removes all our sin. There is power in the precious blood of of the lamb it completely cleanses you of every single sin you've ever committed it makes you white as snow on the inside in verse 19 notice what he says our confidence is in in verse 19 our confidence is not in ourselves we don't enter god's presence like here i am it's david it's doris it's ephraim no it's not like that we enter God's presence not in our own identity or not in who we are, but by the sacrifice of Jesus. That's how you enter God's holy presence. And that's what the, uh, the temple veil represented, was entering through the cross, through Jesus. Verse 20 continues, and he nails it in verse 20. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the, and look at it, verse, end of verse 20, the veil, that is his flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus' flesh. Jesus is sacrificed on the cross. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is the veil, family. He is the veil that was torn. And sinners enter into a relationship with God by going through Jesus. There is no other way to God. You enter through Jesus or you don't enter at all. John uh, 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except by me. Okay? So his, he is the veil. And then the final verse of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21, it says, And since we have a, a great high priest over the house of God, not only is he our veil, but Jesus is our great high priest. He represents you and I in the holy presence of the Father. Without the righteousness that comes from trusting in Christ, without being washed in the blood, you and I would perish on judgment day and spend eternity in hell. But because of the precious blood of the Lamb, we are forgiven. We are welcomed. We are sons and daughters. We cry out, Abba, Father. The veil, this is important, the veil was torn by the Father. Notice back in um, Matthew 27, Verse 51, it said the, the veil was torn how? From top to bottom. That's symbolic that it was the Father from above who ripped the veil. It was God who ripped the veil and welcomes each of us to come into his holy presence by the blood of Jesus. It's his invitation to all. Let's go back. We're halfway through verse 51. Pick it up halfway through verse 50, uh, through Chapter 27, verse 51. So the veil is Jesus. He's ripped the veil open. It is his sacrifice. You're, you, you enter into the, that holy place, the holy of holies, the intimate uh, presence of God at, at, at his feet in worship and purity and holiness by the blood of Jesus, the veil. Halfway through verse 51 of chapter 27 and it says this this was this was huge this was cataclysmic and the earth shook and the rocks were split the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they entered the holy city and appeared to many god shook the foundation of this world at his son's death on the cross on that weekend. What took place at Calvary and what's going to take place that we study next Sunday, his resurrection? It shook the foundations of this world. God was instituting a new covenant, a new covenant where we don't, we don't have a high priest. You know, Pastor David is not dragging a lamb into the sanctuary and turning it into a bloody mess or a bull, and we're not sacrificing a bull or a lamb today. That's done away with. That's over. We enter by the blood of Jesus. But this was massive. The earthquake at Calvary was God's way of saying the demands of the law had been met. And the curse of the law against you and me forever abolished through Jesus' death. The many, this mini resurrection of Old Testament saints like Lazarus and Jairus' daughter, was a taste of what is to come. 
Friends and family, one day this will be you and me. One day you are going to be rewarded for your faith in Christ. And you know what that re reward is going to be? No more death. No more death. I don't know about you, but I hate death. I do funerals on a regular basis for area funeral homes. And I see the pain and the anguish that families experience when they lose a loved one. And it is never easy and it is always difficult, especially when it's someone you know or love. Well, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's defeated our greatest enemy, death. Now, we all have to enter through that portal of death at the end of this life. And the reason we have to enter that through that portal of death in this life is because sin has come into this world. And sin, the curse of sin, brought death. But once we leave this life, we will step into eternity and we will have eternal life. No more disease, no more sickness, no more cancer, no more death. We will live forever. I don't know about you, but I love life. I love life. I love living. And, if, and, I, and I, for the most part, I think life is good. My life is good today, but in eternity, it's going to be even better. It's going to be even better. And that's the eternal life that we look forward to. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Friends, this is eternal life. Who else offers eternal life? What greater gift could you be given in this life? A million dollars, you'll spend it all in no time. A big house, it'll waste away. Uh, think of anything. Any, is there any gift in this life that's greater than eternal life? There isn't one because we all hate death. And through Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. And one day, we will be raised. So here, he's just giving a taste. He's giving a taste to the Old Testament saints. You know, in the Old Testament, they, they looked to Jesus too. Their Old Testament scriptures pointed to Jesus. They looked forward to Jesus. We look back at the Lord Jesus. So he gives them a little taste of heaven and, and a witness to those people here in Jerusalem. Let's continue, verse 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. You know, God the Father wasted no time in answering Jesus' prayer that he submitted on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there, was, there were people there at the cross that day that said, whoa. This was true. This was real. Now, their world had to be rocked. You know, they had to, had to experience an earthquake. They had to hear about the temple veil being torn. They had to see all these things, things happening. But God answers prayer, and he answers the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross by these men confessing that uh, he truly was the Son of God. Anybody who denies the deity of Jesus or denies uh, that he is the son of God or that he is Lord, that he is God. They're just not reading the Bible. I mean, that's really, that's really the, um, the foundation of every single New Testament book. You know, I don't understand how Jehovah Witnesses and, and other cult groups can deny the person of Jesus Christ and him being God because you're just not reading your Bible. It's in every single New Testament book. 
We hold to that doctrine that Jesus is the eternal God. He is God the Son. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's what enables him to do all these miracles. That's what enables him to rise from the grave. It's because he is God in the flesh, and we firmly hold to that. Let's continue, verse 55. Let's get to them taking Jesus down from the cross when we get down to verse 59. Verse 55 says, Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Verse 59, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Wow, as I was meditating on this this week, what was it like, the removal of Jesus's body from the cross to think about everything that we've studied over the past couple weeks the the scourgings the beatings the the fist pounding in the face the 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 crucifixion what was it like to remove this disfigured lord jesus christ from the cross what was it what was it like joseph of arimathea this mentioned here in verse 57, had the sacred job of removing Jesus from the cross. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He opposed the plot against Jesus. He was a, he was a secret disciple, and the text also says that he was a wealthy man. And we also tell, John, John's gospel tells us that Nicodemus joined him at some point in this process of removing Jesus's body. So what was it like to remove Jesus's lifeless, cold, dead, bloody body from the cross? What I'd like to do is I'd like to borrow from a friend of mine, and I want to read to you some excerpts from a, an article written by Ray Comfort called Hands of a Carpenter. So I'm going to read to you uh, some excerpts from his, uh, his article, Hands of a Carpenter. You can find it online. And then I'm going to interject some of my commentary as we go along. And Ray does a really good job of describing what it must have been like on that difficult day that they removed Jesus from the cross. Ray says, and I quote, First, they had to remove Jesus' hands from the barbed Roman nails. The carpenter's hands that once held nails and wood now held by nails and wood. The hands that once broke bread with the disciples, fed the multitudes, touched the lepers, healed the sick, washed the disciples' feet, now ice cold and dead. They, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they would have had to have torn his blood-soaked feet from the six-inch cold steel spikes that fastened them to the cross. Remember, these were the beautiful feet, the feet of him that preached the gospel of peace, the feet that Mary washed with her hair, the feet that walked upon the Sea of Galilee, 
now cold and bloody. Carefully, these men would have lowered the body to the ground. There's no doubt that um, nobody had a closer look at Jesus than Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They had a very close look at the effects of the crucifixion and the scourging. I wonder if they stopped and stared at his inanimate face, looking at the face of Christ as they removed him. The face that once radiated the glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration, now pale, cold, and covered in blood. The eyes that could see into every heart, now gray and glazed over in death. The lips, the lips of Jesus, that rebuked the Pharisees and spoke grace to the sinners, now swollen and bruised from the beating given to him by the cruel Roman soldier's fist. Removing the crown of thorns would have been difficult. It, it, remember, it, it was fastened to his head by the Roman soldiers beating it down with a rod, so it was very hard to remove it. Then they wrap his body in linen, and likely, most likely, they cradled his lifeless body in their arms to take him to the tomb. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea, the, the scripture tells us, he was a secret disciple. He feared the Jews. It was, he, he, he was kind of embarrassed, if you want to say, to be a Christian. But no doubt, as these men moved his body, a sense of rage had to overcome them. How could something so brutal happen to an innocent man? But they were both members of the Sanhedrin. That tells me that they knew the Old Testament scriptures. So as this has taken place and they're moving his cradled body to the uh, empty tomb, I, I can't help but to think that they possibly thought of the prophet Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah says in Isaiah 52, 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured and beyond that of any human being, in his form marred beyond human likeness. He was shredded to pieces as they, as, 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 as they were moving him from the, from the cross to the empty tomb. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Does this grip your heart? It should. As I read it this week, it gripped my heart. And my hope and prayer is that it grips your heart in the same manner it gripped my heart. May Calvary's cross and what took place be as real to us as it was to those who stood on the bloody soil of that terrible day. May you and I gaze upon the face of the crucified Son of God and may shame Grip our hearts if ever the fear of man comes near our souls. May we identify with the Apostle Paul where he said in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
And to think he did all this in love. To think that Jesus did all this as the eternal God. And is in his omniscience, I've said this many times, he had you on his mind. He had you on his mind from the first scourging to the crucifixion to everything. This is, my friend, the love of God. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus laid his life down as an act of love for put your name in the blank. He did it for you so that you could be completely forgiven of all your sins and he could demonstrate and prove his love for you. He went through a lot. Jesus went through a lot for our salvation. I think we can live our lives for him. I think it's not asking too much to surrender your life in obedience to Jesus Christ after everything he did for you. Because one day, you're going to step into eternity, and you're going to see him in all his glory, and you're going to be like, man, this was worth it. This was amazing. Because right now, he's in a bad shape. But Sunday's on the way. Hang on till next Sunday. You know what happens next Sunday. He's going to be raised into a brand new body. He's going to be resurrected. He went to the depths of Sheol for us, and now he's going to become our victorious king. Let it grip your heart. Let it think about what took place on that day, and let it fuel our devotion and our love for Jesus in this life. Amen? Amen. Amen. The Hands of a Carpenter by Ray Comfort. Verse 60. It says, And laid it in his own tomb, which he had hewn out of out in the rock and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away the crucifixion and removal of Jesus's body from the cross it so impacted Joseph on that day Joseph this rich man from Arimathea says man I'm giving Jesus my tomb because he don't deserve in the human sense in the human eyes he don't deserve what he's taking place can't you just sense the devotion forming in Joseph of Arimathea to Jesus. He's like, wow. Let's put him in my tomb. Let's put him in my tomb. And also by Jesus being laid in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, it was also fulfilling Bible prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 predicts this. It says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Meaning that he would Priles prophesied that he would be placed in a rich man's tomb, and that was fulfilled in Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 61, we're at verse 61. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite of the grave. You know, the disciples, they scattered, but the ladies, man, they loved their Lord. This was crushing them. We're going to see in Matthew chapter 28 next week that it says that they were going early to the tomb. They were carrying spices. Why were they carrying spices? They were not expecting a resurrection. They were going to prepare Jesus' body for burial. This had crushed them, but they were still devoted to Jesus. Maybe they had remembered the Bible prophecies. Remember they, mem, mem, maybe they remembered the words that Jesus spoke where he predicted his resurrection, and they were just hoping. They were just clinging to the Lord Jesus to every last second. 
And boy, are they in for a reward on Matthew chapter 28 next Sunday. But verse 62 says, Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. So now we're into Saturday. Jesus was crucified on Good Friday. Now we're into Saturday, which also we know is the Jewish Sabbath. Their Sabbath was not on Sunday. It was on Saturday. Verse 63, and he said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, the deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Man, you just sense their cold, hard hearts. In verse 63, they call him a deceiver. They, they are just bent. The religious leaders and Pilate, they are just bent against Jesus. A deceiver is someone who betrays people, who lies people, and they are attributing this to Jesus who he said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth, where he said in John 14, 6, I am the truth, but they are just totally bent against him. Verse 64, therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. Man, they're, 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 they're in a panic mode. They're like, man, we want, to be, we want to be done with this. We want this to be over. And they're, they're like trying to put all the stop gaps in place to get past this day. And the last deception will be worse than the first, verse 64. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. They wanted this day to be over. So there you have it. A very busy weekend in Jerusalem in 33 AD. The disciples are in shock. Their faith is crushed. Pilate and the Pharisees, all they want is this for to be over. And the light of the world, Jesus, is in a cold, pitch black, dark tomb, dead dead in a borrowed tomb. This was probably the longest day of the disciples' life. To sit around on that Saturday all day long and to think about the past three and a half years, to think about the miracles, to think about him walking on the Sea of Galilee, raising Lazarus, all the parables he spoke, the, the Sermon on the Mount, to think, man, what, what was all that for? What was going on? It was a very, very difficult day because they were perplexed so where was Jesus's spirit between his death and resurrection where was Jesus's spirit between uh, his last breath on the cross and early that Sunday morning his physical body completely died on the cross he was dead the heart had stopped he was completely dead yet Jesus is God. And in his eternal deity, God cannot die. He said to the Father, um, in the Gospels, he said to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, he's saying to the Father, into your hands my spirit is leaving this body and I commit it to your hands. We talked about that last Sunday's message. So where was the immaterial deity of Jesus on that Saturday. There's really two texts that talks about this. Where was Jesus' eternal deity? 
And the first one would be, what did he say to the thief on the cross? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So you could say, Jesus met the thief in paradise. Because he, he told the thief, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. So likely he had a rendezvous, a welcoming of the thief on the cross in this place called paradise. You could say that was one place that he, he went to. But the second one, and the one I'm going to park on as I close my teaching, which is going to go on for a little bit here, is uh, Jesus had a message for the powers of hell. Jesus had a message for Satan. Jesus had a message for the demons. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, or you can follow along on the screen. And Peter makes reference to this moment in Jesus' ministry after his death. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. So there, that's the gospel. That's the gospel that he died on the cross for our sins. Having been, here it is, having been put to death in the flesh, his death on the cross, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison, who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And I underlined the verse there in the passage where it says, he went and made proclamation to the spirits. So it says that he went. So he departed. He didn't cease to exist spiritually, eternally, the God-man, the deity. He went and he made a proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Let's unpack that statement. Let's talk about it. At the cross, Jesus' physical body died. But in his deity, his spirit man, he was on the move. He was on the move. Upon his final breath, Jesus did not go to hell. He did not suffer in hell. But you could say he went to the gates of hell and made a proclamation to all the demons in hell and to all the demons and the devils in the heavenly realm. He made a proclamation to them, something that he accomplished at the cross. And that is this. Demons, Satan, evil powers in the heavenly realm, you no longer have authority over those who trust in me. Amen? You no longer have authority over those who trust in me. By the power of the cross that I just died on, I am crushing you. I am destroying your work. For those who become born again, and may I add, discipled, and grow in their relationship with Christ. He breaks the powers of darkness. Let's look at some Bible verses that support this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was, look at it, 
was to destroy the devil's work. Each and every single human being, you and I, we come into this world under the dominion of sin and under the influences of Satan. But when you get saved and discipled, Jesus destroys this dominion and this influence over our lives. The things that I was involved in before Christ, I'm no longer involved in those evil, sinful practices. Why? Because I got saved, I got discipled, and Jesus broke the chains. And he offers that freedom, he offers that salvation to all who will fully follow him with all their hearts. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 was, a, was a, what they call the Proto-Evangelium, the, pro, the first prophecy of Christ in the Bible. It says, I will put an enemy between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is what I call a drop kick to the forehead. And that's what Jesus did with Satan. He gave him a drop kick. He put his foot firmly on the forehead of Satan, and he crushed him. Boom! And he was defeated. That's the power of the cross. Jesus crushed Satan under his feet by the power of the cross. It is through the power of the cross. It is through the power of believing and trusting in Jesus who died on that cross. He breaks the chains. And I don't care what sin uh, you struggle with, I don't care what type of darkness, dark past you have, Christ can break the chains. He can deliver you completely. I didn't say it was going to be easy. It's going to be difficult at times. But he can break the chains through salvation and through discipleship. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. It says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the cross was like an atomic bomb in the heavenly realms, in the dark caverns of hell, of where the demonic spirits operate and where Satan operates. The cross was, was a bomb. It was an explosion. It ripped them to pieces in their power and their authority, okay? Friends and family, there is a real Satan. There are real demons. There is a real eternal hell. And Satan wants to drag people to hell. Demons want to influence and deceive people and drag them to hell. But Jesus, through the power of the cross, he breaks those chains and he opens their eyes to the spiritual truth of God in this world. Folks, God is real. God is real, he is active, and he's powerful, but we have to surrender our lives to him. And you have to, it's not just enough just to say a prayer and ask Jesus to come into your life and repent, which that is salvation, is receiving, repenting, believing, and trusting in Christ, but you gotta take it the next step. You gotta take that next step in discipleship so that God can fully set you free from the things of this world. Jesus, my, my notes here on Colossians 2.15, Jesus stripped Satan at the cross of his weapons, his tactics, 
and his schemes against us. Satan's influence over you, Satan's influence over this world will bring death and destruction. But when you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and you commit to discipleship, in other words, taking him serious, taking his word serious, and pressing forward into a relationship with Christ, Jesus will break through the darkness and bring salvation and light to your soul. That is the message of the cross. Your salvation, your freedom, your deliverance, you being welcomed into the presence of Father, where he's no longer a holy God that you're fearful of, but you cry out to him, Abba, Father. That's the power of the cross. You're welcomed into his courtroom. You're, you're welcome, and he sets us free. What are you held captive to today? Maybe you're watching online. What are you held captive to today? Are you held captive to drugs? Jesus can set you free. Are you held captive to alcohol? Jesus can set you free. Are you held captive to sexual immorality? Christ can set you free from sexual addiction. Are you held captive, this is a big one, to the evil philosophies of this world? Are you held, everybody in our world is just getting so entrenched in their politics and their ideology and is taking over their life. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, see to it, see to it. In other words, make sure this happens, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies which depend on human tradition rather than on Christ. He can set you free and give you peace in your mind if you will surrender your life to him. Or are you held captive to sin? Something that you know that you're living in rebellion to, to rebellion to God. Something that you can't shake. Something that you have a difficulty with in life and you just, you're trying, but you can't break free from a certain sin. My friend, Christ can set you free through salvation and maybe you need to take the next step, discipleship. Pressing into the things of God. He wants you free. He wants you set free. He wants you walking in joy and liberty and peace by walking with him. He can deliver you. So your absolute only hope in this life, if you are held in captivity to drugs, to alcohol, to sexual immorality, to evil philosophies, or any other sin or vice that's holding you down, your absolute only hope is Jesus. He came to set the captive free. And on that cross, as he breathed his last breath before his final resurrection, not only did he welcome the thief into paradise, into heaven, but he went to the forces of darkness and he pronounced, he proclaimed his triumphal victory over the forces of hell and over the forces of darkness. I don't know the verse off the top of my head, but there's that verse that talks about he holds the keys, Jesus holds the keys. He is our victory. Amen? Yeah. So I hope I answered those three questions. 
The three questions was, what was the significance of the veil being torn when Jesus died? It was God's invitation for you to come into his holy, holy presence. What was it like to remove Jesus' body from the cross? It was a very hard and difficult day. May we never be ashamed of the gospel. Where was Jesus' spirit when, uh, between his final breath and his resurrection? He was making a proclamation to the forces of darkness. Jesus has defeated Satan. May we never be ashamed of the gospel in light of what Jesus went through. And finally, in closing, the veil being torn means we get to enter into God's presence through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I pray this morning that I've given someone hope online or in person that, you, that this gives them a, a ray of hope for whatever they're dealing with in this life. If they're not saved, I pray that they'll surrender their life to you, Lord Jesus, and commit their life to following you. If they're a believer and, and, and they're struggling in an area of their life, I pray, Lord, that you will show them that they can come to you and, and that you will welcome them into your presence by your blood and that you will set them free as they surrender their life to you and as they commit to following you, that they engage you, that they engage you in worship, that they engage you with the word of God. And Lord, I, I, I thank you that unlike the Israelites back in that day, no one could enter into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And that one visit was one day a year on Yom Kippur where you could go in and make atonement. But Lord, because the veil has been torn, you welcome us into your presence. So Lord, help us, Father, to enter in your holy presence into the holy of holies, as the scripture says, by the precious blood of the lamb. Help us to enter in in our worship and our devotion to you. First in Jesus' mighty name I pray. Let us enter in.